Brady. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. I'm the, the campus pastor of our campus for Disney cast members. Uh, and I imagine that, that what I experience at, at Disney in this area is a little bit similar to here. And let, let's, let's find out. How many people here are from Orlando, Florida? Okay, maybe, maybe like a tenth. Now, I would imagine that for most churches in America that a good majority of the people are actually from the place that the church is located, right? That's, that's not the case here. Orlando is a unique place where nobody's from. I mean, it's, it's rare to find someone that's actually from Orlando. I grew up in Branson, Missouri, which was a very similar thing. There was 2,500 people uh, and 8 million tourists that came every year. Uh, and the tourists were all over the age of 65. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know why it's funny, but, but it is for some reason. Uh, and, and so I grew up there, so I, I'm familiar with this. So obviously my path to Orlando, uh, I, it didn't start in Orlando like most of you. And I imagine a lot of you have great stories that would be really compelling to hear. But I've got the microphone, so I'm going to tell mine. Uh, I, I started in Branson, Missouri, and I got married, uh, not at an early age, but at a normal age. And my wife, at one point in our marriage, said, hey, I really feel like I'm called to go back and work for Disney. And I was confused because I thought Disney was a theme park. I didn't think people moved there to, to work at Disney, but apparently there are lots of people that move to work at this theme park, which is an amazing theme park. And so I said, great, I don't want to live in Florida, so let's go to California. So we did. We went to California. And while I was in California, God, I think, decided to have a little fun with me and said, I'm going to call you out of your, the profession that you've done for the last 10 years, the only thing that you've ever known, and I'm going to call you to be a teaching pastor. Which, by the way, pastor is the last thing I ever wanted to do. Because when you're, when you're introducing yourself to someone and they say, what do you do for a living? You almost would rather say I'm unemployed than I'm a pastor because of the connotations that come with that. Uh, but nonetheless, called me to be a teaching pastor. And so I started applying for teaching pastor jobs. Um, but strange thing, uh, churches want you to have some sort of experience before they let you on the stage and teach. I don't know why. But, but they do, and so I didn't get any of those jobs. Uh, so I applied for all kinds of jobs in the church. I didn't get any of those. And then I applied for this one unpaid internship. Now, you have to understand, unpaid internship means volunteer. You would think the only prerequisite for being a part of an unpaid internship would be a pulse. Right? I am offering you my services for free. But no, there was this giant application that I had to fill out. And what was even worse was I had to have references. And the references had to be living in California and had to have known me for more than two years. Well, there was only one person that I knew that fit that bill, and that was my wife. Now, I'll give you a little bit of free advice. If you're applying for a job, you don't want to put your spouse as one of your references. And the reason why is because they know you too well. You want someone that only knows the good side of you. When you're filling out a resume, you're only putting lies on there, right? I worked at Smoothie King in college, and that on my resume became artistic director of Smoothie Creations, right? You want it to sound the best that it possibly can. You want people thinking you're just putting stuff together and blending it, right? That doesn't look great on an application uh, or on a resume. And so your resume is supposed to look really good. And your references are supposed to be people that only know the good stuff about you so that when they call, they're like, Brady's the greatest person ever. It's amazing. They just broke the mold when they created Brady. He's wonderful. You got to hire him. 
But your spouse knows far too much about you. Far too much about you because they know the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so she was filling out the application and one of the questions was, what is his biggest weakness? (laughs) Yeah. My wife said, laziness. (laughs) On a job application. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know what it is with employers, but they they don't want people that struggle with laziness. I I have no idea why, but uh, needless to say, I did not get that internship. And my wife and I had a fun, you know, little sweet, loving, raised voice, you know, conversation about that because I didn't think that I was lazy. In fact, I thought about my life and I thought about the things that I did and the way that I invested my time. And I thought about, okay, as a musician, when I was writing songs, I spent countless hours making sure every word was the perfect word and the perfect cadence that fit the melody perfectly. And when I was doing graphic design work, I thought I spent hours, I would stay up through the night making sure this project was perfect. But through our discussion, I realized that there was a a certain a certain characteristics, a certain set of, I guess, rules that I lived my life by when it came to work is I would work hard at things as long as they were things I enjoyed doing, as long as they were something that, that gave me uh, great recognition or prestige or applause, or if they paid well. Right? If, it, if it paid well, if it gave me some sort of recognition or if it was really enjoyable for me to do, I would, I would gladly spend lots of time and work really hard at it. But if it didn't fall in those categories, I put it off, I procrastinated, I cut corners, I did it halfway, or I just didn't do it at all. That's kind of the way. And so I figured, well, maybe you're right. Maybe I am lazy. Because you know, it was, it's all about our jobs, the things that we do, the things that we work hard at are all about the things that we can get from the job. It's not about the job itself. It's what we can get from it. Can we get enjoyment from it? Can we get money from it? Can we get prestige from it? That's what I'm going to work hard at. But the problem is we work 40, 50, 60 hours a week, and a lot of our jobs aren't very prestigious, right? But, They're not very glamorous. They don't pay us as much as we think we should get. They're not all that enjoyable. So we're spending so much of our time throughout the week engaged in a life that's kind of mundane, menial, uh, empty, ordinary. And that's, that's tough. I mean, is this the life that God has called us to? Just an ordinary life that's not very significant most of the time, except for when we go to church or when we're reading our Bibles? I mean, is, is that the life that we have to look forward to? I don't think so. I think that Jesus has something beautiful for us, even in our work. Um, why don't you grab your Bibles? We're in uh, the book of Thessalonians. We uh, have been following, if you're new here, we've been following the journeys of Paul through the book of Acts. Acts is the historical uh, book that details the spread of the early church and uh, it follows the journeys of Paul as he plants these different churches in modern-day Turkey and uh, modern-day lower Europe and Greece. So he's planting all these different churches, and at one point he stops in Corinth. And in Corinth, he stays there for about a year and a half, two years, which was unique. Paul didn't usually stay a very long time in the cities that he uh, planted churches, churches in. So while he's there, he writes two letters back to this church they'd planted a few months earlier, uh, to the church of Thessalonica. He writes 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And the way that we're going through 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, we're going through it thematically. Uh, Not verse by verse. We're taking the seven major themes that exist throughout both of the books, and we're just going to talk about those. And and we're... uh, 
what I love about where we're going to be today is that Paul takes this theme that can seem really ordinary and makes it extraordinary. Uh, the whole overall, the overarching theme of First and Second Thessalonians is this idea of faithfulness. And living a life of faithfulness, as we've talked about, kind of has, has two prongs to it. The first one is our inward life full of belief. And the second one is the natural things that come out of a life full of belief in God. If we live a life full of belief, then we will naturally do certain things and naturally not do certain things. And we talked about the first week, the great legacy that this life, a life of faithfulness leads, the great reputation and the great way that it spreads the gospel. Last week, we talked about the way that it impacts the way that we share the gospel, that sharing the gospel isn't just the four spiritual laws. It isn't just just the Romans road. It isn't just the Evangie cube. It's not just saying the words that Jesus came and died for you. It's also a life lived that reflects the gospel, that we should be in each other's lives, that we should get into the nitty and gritty, that the stuff that's not always good, the stuff that's not always pretty, and we should allow people into our lives. We're not called to live and demonstrate a life of perfection, but we're called to demonstrate a life of redemption. We want people to see the redemption in our lives and then also to hear the words. The words are important as well, but it needs to be together. A life of faithfulness, of gospel faithfulness is a life that looks like the good news as well as shares the good news. And now Paul gets really practical, which I'm so glad. He talks about how we can live a life of faithfulness in our work, how our work can reflect and display the gospel. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, uh, verse 6, Paul is writing, he says, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. Now, the word idleness here in the Greek is the word that means disordered. So Paul says, I want you to watch out for the guys that are living in a disordered way. It's a pretty generic term. Uh, if you think about it, God created us a certain way. He created us to function a certain way. He created the world in an ordered way. He created us to, to walk in an ordered way. That's how you would use the word ordered, in the way that we were created to live. Also, God commands us to live in the way that we function best. So when we live according to his commands, we're living in an ordered way. So Paul is saying, watch out for the people that are walking in a disordered way. Now, the reason it's translated idleness here is because of the context. So he's saying laziness, idleness is living in a disordered way. That's not the way that God created you to live. That's not the way that God has commanded us to live. And that's not a life that displays the gospel. We shouldn't walk in idleness. He goes on and he says, and not accord with the tradition that you receive from us. When Paul was there with Timothy and Silas, they demonstrated for them what the tradition was for God's people throughout the ages and it was not walking in idleness. It was not being lazy. It was living a life of faithfulness and diligence. Paul said, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we don't have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Paul said, when I was there, I worked hard night and day. And I did this for two reasons. See, you see, 
He said, I had the right to request money from you. He says, as as an apostle, as someone who teaches the gospel, that is a a godly work and that that, that deserves to be paid. So make all your checks out to Brady on the way out. Brady White. Um, Or to cash. I'll take either way. Um, No, he says, but as an apostle, like that that is a good work that should be paid. But I didn't do that. And he gives two reasons. One of them isn't here, but it's in the rest of Thessalonians. He says, I didn't get paid. I didn't make you pay me for preaching the gospel because I didn't want anyone to think that my motivation to share the gospel was to get rich. I didn't want anyone to think that that was my motivation. I wanted everyone to know my motivation was I just wanted to follow the call of God in my life. So I didn't force anyone to pay me. And secondly, I wanted to give you an example to follow. I wanted to live a life that said, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. You see the way that I'm living? You see the way that I'm acting? You see the way that I toil night and day? The way that I work hard? You should imitate that life because that's a life of faithfulness. That's working diligently and that displays the gospel. He goes on in verse 10, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now, before you begin to think that Paul is an extreme right-wing conservative (laughs) and wants to do away with the welfare system, you need to understand, when it comes to the poor, Scripture says, yeah, we need to take care of the poor. Scripture says, uh, those that can't work, those that can't help themselves, we need to take care of them. The orphans, the widows, we need to have a heart for those people. Uh, It talks a lot about in the Old Testament, the aliens, those people that, that couldn't really work in Israel's society. God says, you were once poor and destitute, so you need to take care of those people because I took care of you. But Paul is saying, he gives us some clues here to what he's saying here, is he says in verse 11, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy buddies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Paul is saying there are some people among you who are physically able to work, who are able to earn a living, or who are able to help out the body, because we as the body of Christ, as the community of Christ, should help out so that other people who can't can be taken care of. He said there are some of you who are actually physically capable of doing work and earning a living, but you're not. You're busy, but you're not busy at work. How many of you, if I ask, you feel like your life is pretty busy, would say yes? Probably all of us. Every single one of us, when we talk to you, how has your week been? Oh, so busy. So busy. Got so much going on. What do you got going on? Oh, stuff. Just (laughs) family and work and busy. Just busy. We're all busy. We're probably the most busy society ever. We have, uh, we have, you know, all the information in the world at our fingertips on our phones, right? I mean, we're, we're constantly doing something But what Paul says here is just because you're busy doesn't mean that you're working hard. Doesn't mean that you're living faithfully and diligently in your work. Oh, maybe we should stop listening. (laughs) Because we're all busy. We're all busy. It doesn't mean that we're working hard. I love what Paul does here. He connects our work with the ability to display the gospel. The whole idea for Thessalonians is living a faithful, gospel-centered, gospel-displaying life. And Paul says, I'm going to take it practically. For how you work, if you work faithfully and you work diligently, you can display the gospel. This is the way that you were created to live, and this is the way that God has commanded us to live. We shouldn't walk in idleness. That's a disordered way 
of living. Now, I think that's kind of hard for a lot of us to hear because for most of us, the idea of work is evil and bad and awful. When I, when I was a, a, a kid, uh, my dad, we were in a car, we got stuck in the snow, and so he got out and was digging the snow out from under the tires so the car could, could go, and then he got back in the car, and he was sweating, he was out of breath, and he was freezing because uh, it was cold, and, he, and I looked at him and I said, Dad, I figured out what I want to do for a living. He said, what? I said, I want to be a supervisor. <laughs> yeah, see, see, work for me was evil. Right? Work was a, a result of the fall, a result of sin coming into the world and disordering the world. I did not want to do any kind of work. Why Mosaic hired me, I'll never know. I didn't have my wife as a reference. That's why. That's why. I got, I got smart and I figured it out. Now, here's the thing. Work for us tends to be like a necessary evil. We have to do it so we can eat. We have to do it so we can go on vacation. We have to work hard so that we can retire and not have to work any longer. Right? We don't want to work. But that's not the way that it was from the beginning. Grab your Bibles. Turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. It's on page 2 in the Mosaic Bible, which makes it easy. If you have a, a, a digital form, just Genesis chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 15. Now, now, God has just created this beautiful world, and he said it is very good. The world that God created was very good. Now, sin didn't happen until Genesis chapter 3. Sin didn't come into the world and disorder the world until Genesis chapter 3. So we're in Genesis chapter 2. We're in this good, beautiful world that God has created, Okay. No disordering, no bad things are going on right now. And God says in verse 15, The Lord God took the man and put him, put him in the Garden of Eden to... What? Oh, that must be a misprint in all of our Bibles. It says to work, to work it and keep it. Before sin entered into the world, before the world became disordered and dysfunctional, before sin corrupted the world, God gave Adam the opportunity, the blessing to work. This was a good thing. He created us as humanity to work, to find joy in our work. This was a good thing that he gave to Adam as a gift to function. This was part of his created purpose, to work. Now, fast forward. Jesus comes back to redeem, restore all things. He comes back to create a new heavens and new earth. And what's interesting is in Luke, he tells this parable about this. He, he talks about this, this nobleman that goes away to a far country to get his kingdom and then to come back. And he was telling this because everyone thought that Jesus was going to do all this right now. But Jesus was telling them, hey, I'm, I'm actually going to go away for a while. After I die and rise again, I'm going to go away for a while. And then I'm going to come back later, redeem and restore all things, create the new heavens and new earth, okay? And when he's doing this, he says, I'm going to leave. This nobleman says, I'm going to leave and I'm going to give you each uh, a mina, which was an amount of money, not someone who works with coal, okay? I apologize. That was, that was bad. That was bad. <laughs> So he gave them this, and he says, I want you to work with it and, and, and earn more. And so when he comes back, one guy says, hey, master, I earned 10 more. And he says, good job for doing that. I'm going to now put you in charge of 10 cities, which seems like a random connection. You earned some money, and now you're in charge of 10 cities when he comes back. But what we see in, in this parable and in others is this idea that when Jesus restores all things, 
there will be work. We won't be sitting around with wings and harps in clouds singing, right? That, that's not what eternity is going to look like for us. There will be stuff for us to do. When Jesus takes, gets rid of all the sin in all the world, all the pain, all the difficulty in all the world, there will still be work. Before the fall, there was work. After his return, there will be work. Work is not a bad thing. Work is actually a good thing. Work in and of itself is actually supposed to be enjoyed because of the way that we were created. We were created to enjoy our work. But what happened? Genesis chapter 3 happened, right? The snake happened in, in the garden, right? Yeah, and, and, and let's look at it. Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve, they, they chose to rebel against God. God said, hey, you can eat from all these trees except for this one. And they said, well, this one looks good, so let's eat of it. And they did. And, and when, when God kind of when they did that, God laid out uh, the consequences of, of their decision. And he's talking to Adam in verse 17 in chapter 3. He says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Men, don't stop there. That will get you into a lot of trouble. You got to see the context. You can't stop there. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Instead of work being fulfilling in and of itself, work under the curse becomes about what we can get from work. Right? Can we get enjoyment from it? Can we get prestige from it? Can we get rewards from it? Can we get financial gain from it? It's all about what work can do for us, what it can produce for us. That's what it's become. And under the curse, it's more difficult to produce. Right? The, the ground's going to be more difficult for you to get production from. So if all of our work is about, if our motivation is about what we can get from it, from what it produces, then what are the things that we're going to work hard at? The things that produce. The things that produce the most, most stuff. You know, glory for me, satisfaction for me, money for me. That's what we're going to work hard at. And everything else, we're not going to work hard at anymore. Because it's not about the work. It's about the production. It's about what it accomplishes. It's about what it gains. And we see in Ecclesiastes, along with everything else, that work becomes meaningless when it's a pursuit after production because you can never have enough. You can never gain enough. You can never save enough. You can never get enough prestige or whatever from it. There's never enough. It's a chasing after the wind. That's what Solomon says. How many of you have chased after the wind before? Anyone ever caught it? No, you never catch it. You can never have enough. And what work will do when you're all about production will begin to demand, to demand more of you, more of your time, more of your heart, more of your family. It will demand more and more and more of you. So this is what work has become. It's become futile under the curse because we're all about production and production is difficult and now we don't work hard at anything else. But the good news is that Jesus came. Jesus came he died, he rose again, and in him we have new meaning for our life. We have new significance for our life. We, we live in this unique time. 
this time called the now and the not yet. And the reason that we call it the now and the not yet is because Jesus has already come. He's already died. He's already taken care of the problem of sin and death. And yet, we're in this time between now and when he returns again. And during this time, we still see the effects of sin. We still see, you know, death and destruction going on. So it's in this unique time where, where, where yes, Jesus began the kingdom of God, but no, he hasn't returned to redeem and restore all things yet. But what he says in Scripture is that we are the first fruits of his new creation. That we, the believers in Jesus, are supposed to live like the kingdom of God is at hand. We're supposed to live like God is actually in charge, ruling and reigning, because he is. We're not supposed to live like Jesus is still dead. We're supposed to live like Jesus is alive. So we are to live like the kingdom of God is already at hand. And so when the kingdom of God is at hand, work will be redeemed of its purpose. And so we are supposed to work because the work in and of itself is what we were created to do and we can find joy and fulfillment in that. And I love what Paul does in 1 Corinthians. If you want to turn there, you're welcome to. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is writing to the, the church of Corinth. And in verse 31, he says, this, he says this. He says, So whether you eat or drink... Now, Eating and drinking, those are kind of menial tasks. Now, they're important. We need to eat and we need to drink. But no one gets prestige for how they eat, right? No one's like, whoa, did you see the way he ate that burrito? Unbelievable. No one says that. Right? This is kind of a mundane task that we do. Paul says, okay, whether you eat or drink, which seems kind of insignificant, or whatever you do. So then he kind of opens it up to everything. So, so whatever you are doing, whether it's you know, insignificant or not, do all to the glory of God. Turn to Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. Paul says, whatever you do, there we go, we got that, that blanket statement again. Everything that you do, work heartily. Everything you do, work at it. Work at everything you do with all of your heart. Work heartily. As for the Lord, and not for men. Love what Paul does here. Two things. One thing is he says, there in Christ, there is no insignificant job. It doesn't matter if you're CEO or if you're an administrative assistant. It doesn't matter if you're working some prestigious job or you're taking care of the kids as a, a stay-at-home dad or stay-at-home mom. It doesn't matter if, if, if you're uh, you know, typing stuff or if you're speaking. Like It doesn't matter. Whatever you do, there is no insignificant job in Christ now. And he says in Christ, there is no insignificant task. That everything you do, whether you eat or drink or everything, it now has the opportunity to have great significance. Why? Because you can do it in such a way that it brings glory to God. That I can drive my car in such a way that it brings glory to God. That I can work in such a way that it brings glory to God. That I can do my taxes in such a way that it brings glory to God. That I can do my work and I can do stuff outside of work in such a way that God gets glory. So now every task has the opportunity to be greatly significant. In Genesis chapter 1, we see this beautiful picture of God creating the heavens and the earth. After every day, what does God say? And it was good. When God creates, it is good. When God works, it is good. God works faithfully and diligently. And at the end of day six, 
He said it was very good. It was completed. That God works in a complete, good, faithful, diligent way. And we are created in God's image. We are created in some ways to be like God. That we are supposed to function like God. And God gave us this beautiful demonstration of how we are supposed to work. That we should work faithfully and diligently at all we do. And then I love what happens next, just in case you're thinking what I need to do is just do more work. And some people are working 80 hours a week already. They're like, I just need to do more. I need to work harder. Don't hear that. Because on day seven, what did God do? He rested because he was exhausted and tired and he couldn't go on any longer, right? He needed to refuel. No, that answer that, no, no, he didn't. God is all powerful. God never needs a recharge. But God did it as a beautiful example for us to follow because we need a recharge. We need to rest. We need to reconnect with God. We need to have a Sabbath, not only to have this intimacy with God, but also so we can demonstrate to ourselves that our faith and our trust and our hope is in God, not in what we can do, what we can accomplish, what we can produce. Working faithfully and diligently is not just doing more. It's also following the example of God and resting. It's amazing what God does for this mundane thing called work. That now, in Christ, we can work in such a way that it displays the gospel. We can work in such a way that it demonstrates the character of God. We can work in such a way that it displays the gospel. We can work in such a way that it displays the character of God. And we can work in such a way in whatever we do that it actually brings glory to God. Can you believe this? What we were created to do now gives us the opportunity to display the gospel, display God's character, and to glorify him. And he does us one better. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. First Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, According to the grace of God given to me. I love that he starts there. According to the grace of God given to me. Well, what's the grace of God given to me? Well, he's been saved, like God saved, and that's, that's a grace. But, but there's a whole lot more grace than just that. How many of you just told your heart to continue beating? Right, because you were worried it wasn't going to. So you, you said, keep beating, keep beating, beat, 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 beat. Be, be, are you guys doing that right now? Are you, you making your heart beat? No, none of you. None of you are. What about, what about who in here is causing their brain synapses to fire so that you can, you can make the, the stirrup and the anvil and the hammer work so that you can hear what I'm saying and, and understand it and comprehend it? Any, anyone causing those synapses to fire? None of you. All of that is a gift from God. It's a grace from God. Your body is a grace from God. Your personality is a grace from God. Your work ethic or lack thereof, it's a grace from God. Right? There are so many levels of grace before we even get to anything that we do. It's mind-blowing. And so Paul starts there, according to the grace given to me by God, I, like a skilled master builder, laid a foundation. And someone else built upon it. He's talking about us. That, that Paul laid a foundation, now we can build upon this foundation. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. 
For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Paul laid this beautiful foundation for us, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the foundation that all of us who are believers in Christ, that are disciples of Christ, that are a part of the body of Christ, live on. We live on that foundation. And now Paul is saying we get the opportunity to build on that. Okay, this is strange. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, or precious stones, so these amazing things, you know, gold, silver, precious stones, beautiful things, or wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. He's talking about the day of judgment, the day at the end when Jesus comes back to redeem and restore all things and all things are revealed. Everything is revealed. He's saying that day will actually also reveal our work. The way that we work is going to be revealed on that day. It will disclose it how we worked. And it said because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. It's going to test the kind of work that we have done, how we've gone about our work. Was it faithfully and diligently, or was it in idleness? Was it in procrastination? Was it halfway? Okay? It says, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. We can work in such a way. If we build with precious stones, which is, the analogy is, you know, working in faithfulness and diligence, it's not that actual, the thing that we work will, will pass through and survive. Like if I'm building a chair, the chair's not going to survive. You know, there's going to be recreation of that. But the way that I build the chair, if I build it in the way God intended it, the way that God has commanded it, the way God exemplified for me, the way that Paul demonstrated for me in faithfulness and diligence, the way that I work can survive and pass into eternity. And on top of that, I can get a reward for the way that I work, whether I eat or I drink or whatever I do, do it all to the glory of God. That I have the opportunity in everything that I do to do it in such a way that I get a reward. Now listen to this, okay? God created us because he loved us. What, what we did was rebel. We rejected God. And God came and he saved us, not because we earned it, not because we merited it, not because we did anything to earn it, okay? God just saved us. Beautiful grace by God. God invited us into his family, not because we earned it. God filled us with the power of his Holy Spirit, not because we earned it. God invited us to have an intimate relationship with him, the fulfillment of all our desires, not because we earned it. God gave us a body. He gave us a personality. He gave us ability to work, to do everything that we did. He causes our brain synapses to fire and our heart to continue to beat. And he says... When you work faithfully and diligently, you're going to get a reward. For what? I obviously had next to nothing to do with it, right? It's all grace from you and I can get a reward? Not only am I saved and invited into your family and filled with the Spirit, but now through the way that I work in significant things and insignificant things, I can get a reward. Not only is our work now unbelievably meaningful, but there's more. It can display the gospel. It can display the character of God. It can, it can spread the good news of God. It can glorify him in everything that I do and it can earn us a reward. How amazing is the God that we serve? Are you kidding me that this is the way that he did it? This is the way that he created us? This is the way that he redeemed us so that our lives can have great significance? I just hear God saying, I will not allow my children to, to, to live any moment where they don't have the opportunity to have great significance. 
where they don't have the opportunity to bring glory to me, where they don't have the opportunity to demonstrate the gospel. Everything we do can demonstrate the gospel, the character of God, bring glory to him, and earn us a reward in eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you blow our minds, God, because you are so good, so gracious, so loving and compassionate, the way that you created us, the way that you have redeemed us, the way that you give us opportunity to live lives of deep and lasting significance in everything we do, even the ordinary, mundane, and seemingly insignificant tasks. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to live deeply significant lives. Lord, I pray that we would walk faithfully and diligently in every area Pray that we wouldn't waste one moment, one second that we've been given, that we've been blessed with. God, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for the beautiful blood of your son, Jesus. Draw us near to you. We need you. So we cry out in the powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen.